0: Everybody to day five, our last, uh, not the last stream, but the last day of our 2021 live stream extravaganza. Today, this uh, episode, we are discussing virtual production and the future of Hollywood. And uh, I'm really excited for this because I like I like learning new stuff, getting to talk with people who are experts in their field beyond the limited ability that I have. So this is gonna be a lot of fun. Um, we're joined by Brian Druis? Druis. Druis. OK, thank you. Noah Kadner, Has, Has lull. Yeah, you got it. Oh, perfect. And our own internal expert, Kelly Shipman. Thank you guys for joining us today. Um, I'd like to start off, as I do, with um, in case anybody doesn't know who you guys are, give a little background of who you are and what you do. Uh, we'll start with Brian, and then we'll go to Noah and Has, and we'll work around that way. So Brian, start us off, who you are and what you do.
1: Thanks, Houston. Uh, nice to nice to be here, and thanks. Look forward to the conversation. I, uh, I'm the founder of Zero VFX. I've been doing visual effects since college, uh, and started the company uh, in 2010. And I supervise and produce, and then just kind of kind of run the show. Uh, so yeah, just uh, excited excited for the conversation.
0: Yeah. Thanks, nice. and Noah.
2: Hey, Noah Kadner, I am the virtual production editor at American Cinematographer Magazine. So I get to talk to geniuses like Brian and Has all day long and find out what they're doing. And I also host the virtual production podcast. And I wrote the virtual production field guide for Epic Games, the makers of Unreal. So, yes, I'm a big fan of this stuff. I would put the exclamation point instead of the question mark after the future of Hollywood.
0: <laughs> That's me. Cool. Asterisk. Aster, 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 cool. And Has. How do
3: I follow up with Noah and Brian? <laughs> Okay, I'll try. <laughs> um, hi, everyone. I'm Haz. Super excited to be here. I am a director and producer. Uh, my last two movies were on Netflix: science fiction movies called "The Beyond" and "Origin Unknown." And I did a TV show for Disney called "Fast Lane," which is on Disney Plus. I'm currently like right now in deep in production of my third feature film, which is a fully animated feature film called Rift, which is completed entirely inside Unreal Engine. Scheduled for release probably mid 2022.
4: Cool. cool, awesome.
0: So thank you guys for joining us. And oh, of course, Kelly, who are you and what do you do?
4: <laughs> Hi, I'm Kelly. I, am, I work with Puget Systems in the labs department. I specialize in uh, all things 3D, whether that be content creation, rendering, game development, all that kind of stuff. Thanks. Awesome.
0: And like we did yesterday, I'm going to be taking a back seat and kind of running the show behind the scenes while I let the experts kind of handle their, their stuff. And um, I'll t- be taking questions from the audience and throwing links into the chat and that sort of a thing. So um, since we've gotten introductions out of the way, I will be stepping away and I'll let Kelly kind of run the, run the show. So we'll get right into it.
4: All right. Thanks, season All right. So let's start off. I mean, Virtual production, Unreal Engine, all that has been kind of the buzzword in the hot new thing in uh, film for a long time. How quickly are studios actually adopting this and using it?
1: Noah, do you want to start with that one? Do you want to start with that
2: one and then I'll, I. Well, I well, I, I mean, I think one one thing, and this is interesting because I'm actually working on a glossary of terms for virtual production because it's 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 so new that people are even trying to understand the term itself. But mm-hmm. when we say virtual production right now, people think, "Oh, Mandalorian LED walls." That's virtual mm-hmm. production, and it's actually this very wide continuum of any time that you are using. Um, digital or virtual or real-time tools to kind of enhance in some way uh, live-action production. So LED walls is definitely the kind of most flashy and, and kind of mm-hmm. up-to-date stuff that we're doing with this, but um, it's really been around for for decades if you if you think about it. So I mean. Um, yeah, it's it 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 is just becoming more and more visible now that you know it's flashy and interesting. But mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't I do Brian has his experience yeah. been with this, but it's it really is just big, bigger than it yeah.
1: I, I think of virtual production as is it's really you know it is an umbrella term, uh, kind of like mixed reality in a way, right? Where there's there's all sorts of stuff that sits underneath it. I would <clears throat> I would even consider things like volumetric acquisition. Other, other pieces like that where you're actually taking performances and able to transport them to a different time and place. That, that to me is sort of a, that's a way to kind of encapsulate in my mind what virtual production is. You're, you're taking real performances or real environments or even, you know, photo real environments, but either way you're sort of taking something and transporting it to a different different world. And I think to Noah's uh, point, you know, that that's been going on for a long time. It's just that it's getting... To a point where the LED wall technology really did expose a lot of this to the to the general public in a way that made it feel real tangible and less abstract. So it was like, oh my gosh, you, like I understand this transporting thing now. You know what I mean? Uh, so I think that's that's really where you know it's it's all about that definition. But I think that also what I'm seeing is um, the. Phone technology, right has really pushed forward a lot of this uh, technology and also investments. let's you know, let's be honest, you know our industry is big, but it's certainly not as big as mobile devices. And so as we're getting all these sensors and all of these different applications to support consumer, uh, that starts moving its way into prosumer and then also into professional expectations. So it's mm-hmm. all starting to jam together into one really cool kind of holistic sort of exploration, I'd say so that's, yeah. That's my, yeah
3: yeah no definitely and just like just to echo both brian and noah like it really is an umbrella term like you know like from my end i like from production you know from the you know from the filmmaker side and you know you always get like financiers or executives or studio executives hey hey can we do that mandalorian thing you're like oh man if one more person says mandalorian it's <laughs> it's like what you guys say it's not just mandalorian it's not just led you know for me like you know, real time has been around a long time. You know, I started my career in video games back in 97, 98, you know, PlayStation 1 era. And, you know, I remember my job was to create what you call FMV, full motion video, which is the game cinematics, right? And we essentially were creating movies in a game engine. You know, we were you know, hitting play, everything running in real time, we're using a controller, you know, very rudimentary low res graphics. And now, flash forward today, we have close to photo realistic graphics, 8k texture, displacement maps, and tons of geometry being thrown in. But mm-hmm. the principles are still the same. Yeah, it's allowing a filmmaker to take the camera, move around in the virtual world, you know, trigger off certain events and characters and motion and tell a story, you know, and I think that, that is in a way of describing virtual production because it contains motion capture. It contains volumetric capture. It contains, you know, CG environments. Everything is synchronized to work in real time. And I think today we're in a point where you have amazing graphics cards like, you know, the RTX graphics cards from like NVIDIA. You have high end workstations like Project, and just tons of like the hardware. is becoming affordable, but most importantly, accessible. You know, it's yeah. You know, it's not just the industry. You know, I remember the days you know, to do graphics, you needed silicon graphic workstations. You know, those purple mm-hmm. indigo, <laughs> and they cost like tens of thousands. Was mm-hmm. now, yeah, you, know, you can do it on a laptop and be able to get a good result. And I think all of that is part of what virtual production is.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. The um, who was it? The Academy of Arts and Science, Motion Picture Academy. Uh, just a couple of days ago, put out a video about virtual production. And i kind of went through the history of in-camera vfx like all the way back to like matte paintings from yeah. charlie chaplin movies and just kind of it just shows how this is kind of an extension of that it's really not like that unique <laughs> like if you think about your it your projection forever right yeah I mean, exactly like- <laughs> It's just been on things it's just kind of speeding it up yeah i mean i, I feel like at some point virtual production will stop being like virtual production and it's just production. Like this is just kind of one of the other tools in the system, right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. I I remember back in the day, like, uh, uh, so I worked in commercials for, for quite a while in the, in the career as well. I still do now, uh, to some extent. And I remember when the matrix came out, there was the request for you know oh hey like let's do a title treatment just like the Matrix you know the that thing right yeah. and that was the thing everybody asked for for the whole time and I feel like the Mandalorian before and after really sort of like had that similar phenomenon even though it's not like a title treatment it's a methodology yeah mm-hmm. and so I think whenever I whenever a client approaches and says hey we really want to do this virtual production. I, I say, let's take a step back from methodology and let's talk about creatively what it is do we want to achieve and what kind of interaction do we, and, and really starting to kind of get down into uh, understanding why the LE, like, why do you think you need the virtual production? What sort of problems are you trying to solve? What kind of cool things, like if you have a problem, I might have different and we might have different sort of solutions that mm-hmm. aren't that we could call per- virtual production but maybe are different than what what you saw in the mandalorian uh before and after so i think it is again it's, it's sort of going to that definitional but it's also about us sort of uh as an industry starting to kind of guide the way towards the the application that makes sense for the moment and for the project because it's super technical it's super complicated mm-hmm. you know like sometimes Production just isn't ready to go into a volume uh, because you know we we don't have enough time to prep it or X Y or Z. There's just there's all sorts of different sort of things that go along with it, which I'm sure we'll talk about. But uh, if you if you just sort of listen to the like let's do it this way uh without talking about like what the goals are that's kind of where i think that that can kind of go off off the rails a little bit so
3: yeah yeah and I, absolutely like you know I, I used to be a vfx supervisor and then when i transitioned to becoming a director i remember having conversations with people like yourself brian you know like vfx advisors vfx producers and um it's interesting because like you know i get really excited Like i i shot a virtual production led wall um project last year and it was my first led wall and i kind of fell into it really easy because of my background in visual effects and video games but i remember the conversation the awkward conversation i had was with the financiers they're like why do we have to spend this amount of money up front because they're so traditional they're so used to like okay we get a bit of money for prep we get the money for the talent the top line talent and then you know the visual effects we'll figure out the tax credits later on we'll do some of it in montreal some of it in wherever that we get the best taxes. But- they can't think like that when it comes to virtual production. You got to do all of your cost of the visual effects and all of the CG it has to be final pixels signed off. So not only so what I found was was a bit of a paradigm shift in terms of production was the conversations I'm having as a director. I got to make my decisions like right away. I can't be like, oh, you know, I've got time to think about it in in visual effects. You know, we can replace everything later on. Um, you kind of have to get away from that. But also executives at the studio. And the directors both have to make a decision together on the spot, and so that the cost of going and make those CG environments, you know, are well spent. And then the other thing that you that I realize is how many days are we going to spend in the in the volume, you know, if it's for like you know a few shots then it's not worth it shooting just a few shots. You know, for me, it's got to, you've got to have at least 65 to 70% of your movie is in the volume for it to amortize across the production budget to, to make sense so that your producer isn't like, really, we could have shot it on green screen. <laughs> we could have shot some like second unit plates. You know, the camera isn't doing anything crazy. You know, and I think that's the conversation. You're absolutely right, Brian. You know, a lot of that, you need to have these conversations like, do we need to do it this way? And what is the reason of doing it this way? Yeah, I mean, There are a lot of reasons on my end, like we wanted to use a big name talent that, and she wouldn't leave where she is. She wanted to stay in L.A. So like, okay, so we just reach out to an LED wall company in L.A. We shoot them there. It's fine. But for other reasons, because creatively, you think it's going to be cool. You want it to look like the Mandalorian, which (laughs) it won't Mm -hmm. because it's a style thing. and I think there's a level of education. And I think like Noah, when you, you know, what you released, your, your PDF, you know, the Unreal Engine Guide for Virtual Production. Now, I, I read that, which is amazing, by the way. Um, Thank you. Like, it's things like that, that. I think when producers are looking to break down a budget or even entertaining of of having a conversation with a visual effects house like, like you guys, Brian, is maybe to have some education of just looking at what it is what is the terminology you know when you say virtual production what does that mean um and then having that before they go and have a conversation with an effects house or or virtual production supervisor
2: yeah it's it's interesting um if you kind of if you look back in the history of filmmaking this this sort of thing has happened before where there's kind of a shiny new technology that has some kind of watershed moment like if you go back to the 90s you know when jurassic park first hit everybody was like oh my God, they can do CG dinosaurs. It doesn't look like, you know, kind of like janky stop motion anymore or, or some kind of weird, you know, giant uh, puppet. Um, and so then there were a lot of movies in the 90s that had CG in them that looked really, really bad because suddenly every every filmmaker was like, I could, CG is the answer to my problem. I'm, I have a crappy idea for a story, but let's just throw CG at it and it's going to be amazing and people are going to see it and I'm going to get Jurassic Park money. So, um, you know, I think in some ways, Mandalorian may be that sort of gateway to another era where suddenly everything is going to be shot on led walls and probably as has says a lot of stuff that has no business being shot on led walls. So, um, the, the antidote to that is really to study this stuff, understand what it's capable of, and then really start from the, from the beginning and make it work as that kind of production. It's not something you just want to bolt onto something that was already going to be a completely conventional sort of shoot. It really, in this in this project that I'm working on to develop terminology for virtual production, we're even talking about adding a fourth phase of production, kind of pre-pre-production to really capture the idea that there's so much more work that's required to make these things really shine before you shoot that people are so used to deferring to post-production where it's like, oh, I'll just grab something on a green screen stage and, you know, the VFX folks will make it work somehow in post and I'll be fine. It's actually no, it's like that activity happens before you shoot now. And getting producers to understand that and getting the whole crew's head around that the post-production period is going to be much shorter as a result and cheaper is a lot of work. And that's really, if you can kind of embrace that you know, that that's really the strength to lean into and not just, you know, whatever, whatever you whatever the question is, your answer is LED wall. That that yeah. would be a mistake, I think.
1: Yeah, for sure. And because it, it is a seismic difference, you know, because you're going from a fix it in post mentality. Right. Which is something that, you know, like we've got great tools, we've got great artists, we've got we've pulled it off like every single time. Right. Yes, you can fix that in post for sure. And you still can. But if you're spending all of your VFX budget you know, up front, you really want to fix it in prep uh, because it, it, is that, it is that mentality shift from fix it in post to fix it in prep. Uh, and that's just, yeah. you know, that's months and months and months different, uh, and just mind space different. Right. So it's, it's uh, a really, absolutely yeah, also it's a the whole hurdle than the technology, I would guess yeah. uh, in, in a lot of, in a lot of respects, because it needs everybody to kind of be needs, you need, you need a big tent and that tent needs to all agree that decisions are made early. Right. Um, so that, really? that that's tough. That's tough.
3: Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, also the other thing is the execution thing. I remember, like, you know, when we first shot the the LED wall project last year, um, like. Yeah, people just assume you just stand in front of the screen and you've got your shot, and they don't realize the thing that makes the LED walls work so well is a combination of good art department. Yep. You know, you need yeah, it's a it's a balance between having foreground. You know, we we shot a virtual forest, so we built all these like forest props in front, and we had you know we had an LED wall above with you know simulating what moonlight was. But you know, you still need traditional filmmakers craft. On set, you still need good art directors and you still need good gaffers. And um, I remember like a a lot of the traditional filmmakers, you know, the film crews are a bit worried. They're like, oh, are we out of a job? I'm like, well, no, I mean, look, when the green screen revolution came out, you still need people to light that green screen to look good. You still need props to make everything seamlessly fit. And I think there's a level of upskilling that um, a lot of the traditional um, crew um, should be aware of. You know, like, you know, we had our gaffer spent time with the Digital Village or the Unreal Engine Artist Digital Village as they were lighting and it was it was giving good tips that, hey, you know, you could get a bounce light here, you know, you can you we could pull a fill light over here. And he and all of a sudden he's being involved. And this is usually the gaffers are usually the guys that just light it and then they just stand and wait, get their stuff done and then they come on. Now they have an interaction with the digital department. So I think there's a the, the pro thing I found about the whole virtual production experience, or like from what I've seen as a filmmaker, is that there was much more collaboration involved because there's so much work that has to be done in prep, you know, in front of the screen. You know, one of the things we did, we did like a level of tech viz because, yeah, that's the other thing also. And I'm sure you guys will confirm, but the fact that when you hire a volume stage, you also need to have prep days, tech, a tech recce, right? Can't just turn up and put you on real engine scene and voila, off we go. You know, everything's got to be gen locked and all of that stuff. And and so I remember like doing my shot list, you know, because you, know, you do your shot list as a director and I'm, my shot list changes instantly the minute you do your tech recce. But the thing about the tech recce is I don't want to spend five days in a volume just doing tech recce i mean that that stuff's expensive yeah. regardless it's expensive especially now so what we did was we we got the measurement of the stage and we we got because every stage has got you know floor plans right you get them to send Mm the floor plan you bring your dp of the what lenses you're going to use and in in my i think it was cinema 4d or maya one of those 3d apps we we blocked out the stage and we we played footage on a on a on a plane in a, a moving media texture in on the card and we simulated it and that was our tech fizz and then when we went on the day to shoot it there was no nasty surprises the thing that we were thinking is how much foreground should we put in front for it to blend well you know mm-hmm. um and again that's the kind of thing that i think filmmakers need to be aware of you know like creatives have to think about it not like oh we just turn up an led wall and it's all going to work you know the other thing is that like first ad's they need to understand when they're doing their time boards that you would have to restart the machine at some point. You know, it's going to clog up. You know, your video RAM needs to be refreshed, and mm. things are going to crash. Things are not going to track well. You know, and so you've got to put in time for for reboots. And yes, it may take ten minutes or five minutes to reboot, but ten minutes is not a luxury we have on set, right? So there's a lot of I think a lot of education that is required. Um, because there's a lot of like, oh my God, this is amazing. This is Mandalorian, this is great, this is great. But I think people need to understand the obstacles and like with every level of filmmaking, whether it's green screen or non-visual effects, it's problem solving. And yeah. virtual production brings another set of problems that you have to solve.
1: Yep. And, and they are a lot of interlocking, sort of overlapping problems at times, right? Okay. Where there's a lot of different sort of uh, parallel technologies that all have to communicate nicely. Yes. So if something's not communicating, in real time while the pressure is well, you know, while everyone's staring at the back of your head, uh, trying to figure out which part of that is, is the spanner in the works. Uh, you know, that, that certainly happens, right. It's, it, it's not, it's, it certainly is, um, yeah, it's it's always a moment, right? So.
3: Particles. Particles is the big one. Like we had particles in the background moving. Because we oh. I, you know, I thought it'll be cool to have some embers in the background. But then when you're moving a camera and, and it's trying to track mm. things and it's getting confused, or well, what am I tracking? And you realize, oh, we should just turn off the particles or you know, things <laughs> like you know, like I, I did the rookie thing where I would pick up the camera and, and just shot the screen. And I'm like, why am I filming the screen? We have the CG environment. You can render the CG environment now. Don't just shoot the screen. You should be shooting a 50% live, 50% real, 50% screen. And it's a level of training because you just instantly pick the camera to shoot the screen. Because you're like, well, I'm here. I might as well get a shot of the... Full environment. You're like, no, no, no. You get like your clean easily. plate.
2: Get your clean plate. <laughs> you clean plate exactly. exactly. Yeah. It, and, and I think some of this is kind of the victim of its own success as far as the way it's presented as, as this incredible yep. new technology. But it's funny. Right. I, I was actually interviewing one of the assistant directors of The Mandalorian uh, a couple of weeks ago. And she said they, they actually have a really funny Star Wars themed error screen that they throw up. Whenever the, whenever the volume has a major problem. And every, and she just instantly calls like, okay, everybody, that's going to be 10 minutes or maybe an hour. We'll be right back. So everybody just knows like, oh, break time when they see that graphic. <laughs> it, it happens. I mean, it's a, it's a big, complicated system. A lot of it is extremely bespoke and and mm, stuff yeah. is being asked to do things and connect to things that it was never designed for, especially mm-hmm. the screens themselves. You know, um, those are built for architectural usage. Those are built for jumbotrons at at stadiums and for concerts. I mean, the last thing they were intended to be used for is is to be filmed as reality for movies right now the manufacturers are kind of starting to catch on to what you know wants to be done and, and I think you'll see some products that are a little more purpose-built but um, yeah I mean this, this stuff has a tendency to be to be operated really like uh, like a space mission in terms of its complexity and it requires the crew the manpower the, the person power to, to make all that work and it doesn't always work
1: and and the philosophical buy-in that you know the, that uh, if you do have to wait an hour, uh, everyone knows that that's kind of one of the things going, going in that you, that may happen. And, you know, that's just,
4: that's part of the, the cost of entry. Yeah. yeah. Let me get to a question from YouTube from ones and twos. Uh, thanks for doing this. I just started online classes for virtual production. What entry level skills would you recommend focusing on for someone wanting to enter the virtual production field? It's kind of a, Big Ooh. feel. Or would you say yeah, It
3: us? depends what you want to do in virtual production, right? Um, yeah.
2: Yeah, that that's very broad. It's like if you want if you want to be an animator, if you want to be a filmmaker, if you want to be somebody operating a volume, if you want to be somebody you know doing doing mocap. I mean, I would say if you're just starting at home right now, it absolutely cannot hurt to learn on real engine. Like the skills Mm -hmm. that's, that's a skill that is really, um, cutting across a lot of this stuff. You know, you could go on to make video games of that. You could go on to make, you know, shows like Mandalorian or, or any of the other, I mean, Star Trek discovery just wrapped a season that, that shot the heck out of one of these led walls. So, um, That would definitely be something. And yeah, I mean, all of the stuff that, I mean, my job is really to interview filmmakers and kind of understand what they're doing, kind of report back and and kind of look at workflows. But everything that I've learned in addition to that is really just looking at stuff on YouTube, reading through manuals, looking through tutorials and just playing with this stuff. I mean, the cool thing is a lot of this is is readily available, you know, that they made Mm -hmm. Unreal Engine basically, well, not basically, but completely free to download and play with. And use professionally is is pretty uh is pretty stunning i mean that that's a tool that with just that you could make you know anything you could imagine if you put the time into it so it's i think it's a great time to get into it it's, yeah. just, it's just willing to put in that that you know kind of uh, personal investment to understanding how these tools work and, and doing something cool with them
3: yeah definitely um there's so much knowledge out there like i learned unreal engine literally watching youtube videos like for me like i got into unreal engine in middle of 2019 because I was doing previs prepping for the third live action feature, which obviously got postponed due to unfortunate COVID. Um, but the best thing I de- I did was learn, download unreal installed. It. And I installed it on a Mac laptop, by the way, now I'm on a full on PC, but like, this is like, you know, because I was like, I'm a director. I don't need to, you know, once I left visual effects, I didn't look back at using shake or nuke or after Effects. I was like, hey, I'm just going to you know, let the guys do it. But you know, when you have time, you're like, I want to do some previs. And, um, And what I did was the way I learned it because it can be overwhelming, right? You go onto the the amazing Unreal educational material and there's like a lot to learn. Do I learn blueprints? Do I learn this? Do I learn that? Mm -hmm. Do I learn lighting? And for me, I'm like, well, you got to ask yourself, what is it you want to achieve with Unreal Engine, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, as a director, I want to know, how can I bring some assets in? How can I move the camera? How can I adjust the lens? How can I do depth of field? And how can I just render out a bunch of sequence of EXRs or QuickTime and bring it into an edit. Right. That those are my my cheat list, my 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 list. And yeah, every night I'll go through it. And you know, I think it was within like a weekend I'd put together a quick sequence. Very rudimentary. But my point is, I'd never touch Unreal. And all of, all of a sudden I had a 30 second to 60 second sequence. And I'm like, oh, okay. So now I want to know how to bring particles. Now I want to know, you know, how to get better lighting. And then you just gradually build it in. And there's it, just so much material online. You know, there's people like Matt Workman, you know, he was the first guy I looked, at, I'm just going to follow this guy. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And that is tons of people out there that's just doing amazing tutorials. I think. That's another element that I feel with virtual production brings is that community. You know, when I when I broke into visual effects, it was extremely hard to break into visual effects. There wasn't training facilities back back in like early 2000. You know, it was like you start off as a runner or a junior compositor or, you know, in my case, like as a roto artist and I kind of worked up through compositing. Um, but now, you know, you, there's just so much. You just literally need to ask, them, what is it you want to do? You know, do you want to make a short animated film? Do you want to do, um, you know, live compositing using composure in... Um, in Unreal just ask what you want to do and then figure it out by just because there's so much stuff out there the, the community is huge
4: for sure yesterday we had on a bunch of um uh, motion capture specialists um, we had uh Gabrielle is in chat feeding wolves Yay. she's working with Has and uh, some other YouTubers and um they're all like putting out amazing tutorials on doing motion capture for Unreal, um, using either body suits or cameras or whatever. Um, So, yeah, there's definitely a lot of tutorials out there. Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and just to kind of put a fine point on it, you know, when I jump on LinkedIn, I literally every other post I see is like, "Do you know any Unreal specialists or generalists, or just people that have even who know even what Unreal is?" Because I need them. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's it. it, There, there. It's almost like this explosion has happened, and it's slowly kind of proliferating out in the universe, and it needs people to, you know, be a part of it. Which is to say. Um, the demand has greatly out, outpaced the supply because most of the people up until a few years ago who knew anything about Unreal were doing video games, mm-hmm. which is, you know, obviously a, a kind of parallel but different set of disciplines to filmmaking. You have a lot of people who are incredibly well-trained in more traditional 3D animation packages like, you know, your Maya, your 3D Studio that can definitely be retrained into Unreal Engine, but there's just kind of that moment where, you know, there's a there's a huge gap um, and, and I think a big opportunity for people who are maybe just getting started to jump into this versus, you know, needing to build up those years and years of, of kind of um, working their way up the ladder. So, you know, now is absolutely a great time to get into this. And I think it will be that way. I, I think you'll see, you know, in the next couple of years, like I, I one of the articles I wrote recently was all about – the different, um, construction of led wall stages around the world. And it quickly went, I mean, in, in the space of two years, it went from, oh, there's about 10, you know, that we know of that are in various stages of construction to now there's well over a hundred. And, you know, I think that's going to double again in the next year. And, you know, Mm -hmm. every one of those places needs to have a full-time crew of people who know how to do this stuff. So yeah, it's, 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 just an incredible, and another thing that's cool that I that I think you know you guys probably have experienced as well, in, and kind of a silver lining to the pandemic is that the the opportunities to be part of those productions is no longer really geographically based in any way. Mm-hmm. Um, people who are operating these screens may very well be sitting ten feet away from them in the studio. Or they could be halfway across the world on a VPN, dialing in and literally doing the same job, and nobody cares because it's like they're the best person for it, or you know they they yeah. wanted to have this person work on it, and they're just working on it. I mean, those barriers are just completely gone right now. It's just anywhere you you might be in the world, um, if you have some talent and and some you know ability to to get yourself out there, it, it's possible to do it. So yeah. it's great
3: that that's how that's pretty much how i was able to do motion capture on my movie you know like like gabriella is based in florida i'm based in london like 4 p.m i would log in zoom screen she would share her xn's live view sometimes she'll share unreal and i would direct it and it was like literally no different than being on the set except one set you know you got you got craft services uh we just made our own craft services um but the thing is that i was able to direct her come out of as many versions of the of the performance we needed. You know, you still do your traditional shot list, yeah, I send that to her way in advance. And then the next following you know, day in the morning, I would wake up and boom, in the Microsoft Dropbox, you know, there, there is like all of the mocap and I'll just d- drag and drop, retarget. And I'm like, oh my God, we're making a movie virtually. Like, you know, she's my virtual production supervisor, mocap performer. And it completely changed the way I, I approached making films. And then, you know, and then soon after, I put a post out looking for more unreal engine artists because I realized I don't need to use like settle with people that are in London. I can just choose the best person I think is right for the job. And Gabrielle was mm-hmm. perfect for this job. And then we end up hiring someone called Mark Cheng and Alex Kong in Montreal and all those people. Like I was following, I'm like. I would just follow their work because oh, I'll be cool to work with them, but they're not available they're based in the US. And I'm like, no, they can, they can come work on this. Yeah. You know, even like international wire transfers, it's all super mm-hmm. simple these days. And you're right. You know, it feels like virtual production is also part of the fact that it's, it's non-geographical you, you, virtual means that you literally can have a studio. You know, my entire company is run using Perforce and every mm-hmm. morning I go synchronize, boom, I can see what everyone's doing. We can log in and out of assets. We can source control and, again, you build a sense of community, but at the same time, it's your focus on making good work. You're not focused about all this bottleneck of like someone being across the world or time difference. You just make it work because the technology is there.
2: Yeah. Yeah, And, and, you know, um, the studios used to be a big kind of um, roadblock to this because they really had major IP concerns. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, and 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 maybe maybe this is something Brian is deserved, But you know, a visual effects house used to be very much like a roof over which people come into an office. They're on their they're on a render farm. They're on a local server. And and the thing and nothing kind of comes in and out other than like plates or finished shots. No one would ever be. I mean, they might have a few people remotely dialing, but the but the vast majority of folks would be clustered around you know in offices doing work. And now, uh, you know, the systems work. I mean. I talked to some visual effects supervisors about a year and a half ago and they were like, I hate to say it because the situation with the pandemic is terrible. However, that being said, it's allowed me to rearrange my facility in the way I've been dying to do for years and no one would ever let me because they would say, oh, no, no, we're not letting, we don't want IP to go out. Like everybody under the one roof, like it's too Mm -hmm. important for security, forget it. And now it's like, finally, I get to do it the way I want it. So, I mean, there there has just been that decentralization.
1: Yeah, I've been, uh, you know, like security has and content security has always been a thing, and uh, we, you know, we very early started cloud rendering uh, using, yeah, and developed Zinc, which then got sold to Google. Um, yeah. But even back then, just just the idea of, you know, cloud-based rendering was was like a a very scary thing for some of the studios, right? Um, so it, it, you know, the I think as people have become more familiar with the security involved with just general, you know, internet uh, and HIPAA kind of, you know, like like everyone's comfortable or fairly comfortable with data in the cloud, especially if, mm-hmm. if it's done properly uh, and you do have the logging and the source control, you know, these things are, you know, it's almost more secure if everyone's dialing into a central point uh, than, than not. Um, and so mm-hmm. we found definitely the, the remote, or I don't even want to say remote, but distributed work model is is really great. Uh for a lot of a lot of reasons. It, it allows a little bit more flexibility in people's lives. You can work again with the with the best people that you know wherever they are. And strangely enough, though, tax incentives start becoming like a reverse, you know, they 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 become a problem because those people are now not under, you know, if they don't live in the province or the state where you're based, then all of a sudden they're not you may not be hitting the the tax incentive things that the studios want. So if it's not security, it'll be tax incentives, right? Um, yeah. but, but either way, I think at the end of the day, the the thing that needs to get figured out is mentorship in a distributed model. Kind of going to the question that the the YouTube viewer asked is how do I how do I learn what I want to do? If I don't know what I want to do, normally, you know, like people coming up into the industry would kind of learn from osmosis through those the shoulder to shoulder moments. Uh, and the question is if it's if you sort of distill stuff into task-based world for somebody who is starting as a generalist, uh, how do they how do they explore sort of those those things that maybe aren't their direct task, but sort of nearby or parallel ones? which maybe they didn't even know existed and which are way more exciting to them but they just didn't know because they didn't know it existed until they saw somebody down the hallway doing something really cool and walked by it right so that that's the thing that we're trying to figure out now is is mm-hmm. the mentorship model for that it's 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 really tough it's um but either way for virtual production and just production in general i think a task based distributed is certainly music to a lot of a lot of people's ears for sure um,
4: yeah for sure so i want to get to this comment, where'd it go? Okay, from uh, Kentucky Ranger on YouTube. It's funny yet really awesome that many newer movies using this tech are based on video games. Probably extrapolate that out to just sci-fi. Um, are there plans on just making a non-video game movie? Um, I mean, I assume that's probably a, a uh, somewhat of a misconception that it's just, this is just sci-fi. Based stuff mm-hmm. using virtual production and stuff. But um, what do you see for non sci fi movies using this tech?
2: Yeah, it's I mean, everything. I mean, yeah. oh, so yeah. go ahead. No, no, I, I think you're going to say what I'm going to say. So you go for it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, um, this year, let's see. I've talked to who have I talked to? The, the Muppet Haunts, The Muppets Haunted Mansion was completely shot in an LED volume that's out on Disney Plus right now. I mean, that's kind of genre, I guess. It's like more of like horror puppets. But I mean, you know, mm-hmm. that's definitely not hardcore sci-fi. Um, let's see what else. There's a movie coming out on Netflix next month called Red Notice. The little, little tiny movie with like The Rock and uh, Ryan Reynolds that ha- that actually did a bunch of, you know, it's interesting. That was originally planned to be a completely mostly on location shoot, you know, it's like an international dualized movie and, you know, due to needing to reconfigure things for COVID, they, they did, they did a fair amount of stuff on led walls, not a ton, but, you know, <laughs> some key scenes that, that would have been big location scenes. And that's, you know, that's not sci-fi at all. I mean, it really, and, and I think, you know, even weird stuff, like um, not weird stuff, but, but stuff you would never even expect. Like there's a show on ABC called, Uh, I want to say it's called Station 19 or something. It's about like firefighters in Chicago or Seattle or something like that. And it's, you know, there's a ton of scenes where people are just having like soap opera drama inside a fire truck as they're driving to or from an emergency. And all of that used to be on location where they would bolt bolt cameras to the side of real vehicles and just drive down the street. Mm -hmm. And and now they are doing a lot of that just on on LED stages just because why not? Yeah. So um, it, it, the other th- that's the thing. I think a lot of this tech is so invisible to to the naked eye in the sense that if you're not aware of how it's being used, you might not even realize that you're seeing it just because it just looks so yeah. believable. So, um, you know, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of video game adaptions out there in general these days because people love them. But at the same time, it, it's it's this tech is just kind of creeping into a lot of different genres and you'd, yeah. you'd kind of be surprised. Um, how much sure. it is and how much it will be just because there are so many facilities coming online that can do it now. Yeah, That's the I point, just, though. Just yeah.
3: finished it. Oh, sorry. Go on, Haz. No, I was going to say, I mean, just to echo what Noah said, like, that's the point. You know, you're supposed to watch something and not pick out, oh, that's LED wall or that. So it's the same thing with visual effects, right? You know, when you do a visual effects shot, you know, the, the best visual effects shots I see are in the non- sci-fi genre movies are the ones that are like drama and you watch it and then you watch it behind the scenes you're like oh my god that was green screen that was so Mm -hmm. well comped I think it was um, a vampire on a plane movie some German production I remember watching (laughs) last month and like I just assumed like you know they shot it at an airport you know because I'm like you have easier but no a lot of that was like green screen really good set extension visual effects you know there was no LED wall there you know I assumed there was the LED wall because it was really well lit but when I saw the behind the scenes it was green screen I'm like wow just the lighters and compositors are like rock stars. And that's mm-hmm. the point. You're not supposed, if you do it well and use it well, like with anything, the audience shouldn't be distracted by that. They should be just so immersed in the story and the characters. Yep. And the inverse of
1: that is something we just experienced is uh, we, we were just finished a movie where uh, the backdrop, you know, a, paint, a, a printed backdrop really did not hold up very well. So we just ended up rotoing and replacing that background, right? Um, So, you know, even tried and true things fail at times, right? And visual effects might be needed to fix those sort of more, you know, tangible, like non-esoteric, very clear old school stuff. Uh, Me personally, I I would love to see printed backdrops be replaced with, uh, you know, just those things where it's like, oh, hey, you're on a sitcom stage and you open a door, You want to see the outside, you know, like to have a painted, uh, printed backdrop there, uh, really feels like antiquated at this point, especially with the, you know, like in a benign situation like that, LEDs really should be a, there should be a a thing that's in place for that stuff pretty much. Like, cause that, that will save people money in the long run for sure. Cause those even that you'd be surprised how expensive those printed backdrops are as well. So even just really benign stuff like that, that's not going to make, you know, it's not going to make American cinema, cinematographer probably, but it's still a really, <laughs> hey, yeah, it's that, that, really that. annoying. It's like, like, I can't tell you how many, how many sequences we've shot where it's just blue screen and you're comping this exterior environment and it's really hard to do well. Uh, and you know, like it, those, you know, if you could get an led in there, that that's for sure the way to go for sure the way to go.
3: And you don't need yep. a big and you don't need a big led wall as well like you know there's like some scenarios i've seen where you, you you know you're in a room and you want the windows and the thing about the cool thing about right you just need a small screen because obviously the bigger your screen the more the more real estate you have in your volume capture the more expensive it's going to be right is typical stage cost but like if you, you know if you've got a built set and you get a really good monitor you know that that, that has the fidelity in the detail in terms of the, the pixels um, you can just have that by the window, synchronize it. So, you know, because the whole idea of LED wall is that it's synchronized your camera. So, you know, you get the parallax, right? Not just the great lighting. But if you're smart about that, you know, you, you know, for television sitcom shows, you shouldn't have to use painted backdrops or... Or blue screen when his hair all over the place. Um, so yes, yeah, so I think a lot of that is once people understand, you know, the the tech a bit from a from a production point of view, as opposed to the wow technical side, they will start to understand, you know, how to use it well. I think and be thinking outside the box.
4: Yeah, yeah on the um, the stream that the Motion uh, Picture Academy did the other day about virtual production, one of their people talked about how they wanted to do a shoot like on on site. At some like famous location but they can only get like the ability to film there for one day like that's all they had so instead they spent that one day getting some like establishing shots and um 3d photo scanned the entire area so they can then take that back to an led volume and redo and then have more shots control lighting and all that kind of stuff even though it's a modern realistic thing, we'll do it on volume because they can't get the real place for that long. Yeah. Yeah. That's actually
1: where we spent a lot of our time during, I would say like from last, from mid last year on was really focusing on lidar scanning and photo scanning and really Mm -hmm. setting up a pipe for that, uh, through our facility. So we've started really, really focusing and, and really looking at that as our, as our sort of focus in, you know, knowing what we do well, what our team does really well, which is like making photo real environment assets, really sort of focusing on, okay, great, let's go to a place and actually scan, scan these locations, really, really get good at, at bringing those back. And then that's an asset that's either ported, you know, can go to unreal, you go to Maya, it can go to both, you know, like it, mm-hmm. it can, you know, so long as you have that, that dope data set from set from a location, that's, that's really the, the building blocks that you need. So it's, it's like, I think that's another piece where you're going to see a lot of innovation uh for for set acquisition
2: yeah just to kind of piggyback on that i i heard another funny story again from mandalorian because and you know this is a great example But it's like it's so ubiquitous just because it was the first and and did so much stuff but um talking about art department you know and we have this term now the VAD, the virtual art department which is basically just the art department but is is much more involved directly in, in creating you know uh camera usable digital assets and so when you look at the mandalorian it's interesting If you I mean, now I'm to the point where I can I I can't unsee it, but it's like if you watch any scene in that show, you're gonna notice that in the foreground where the actors are, there's always just a pile of junk. And as they get as it gets further back into the background, there's always just more of it and it's always kind of clustered around at a certain point. And that's where the screen starts. They always Mm -hmm. do that. And so, but because you know, when you're filming a show, you start from one angle and then you do an over the shoulder, maybe you flip around. And so what happens often on that show is a prop that began as a real physical prop, ultimately then ends up at the back end of a shot and now needs to be on the wall as a digital prop. And so they're getting into situations where they start with a real prop. Then they scan it and it ends up on the wall. And then, you know, while they're working on the wall, somebody's like, oh, wouldn't it be cool if it looked like this? And, you know, they change it around. And then they're like, oh, now we need it to be physical again. So they literally go back and 3D print the new version of what was started (laughs) as a completely physical prop, got altered as a digital prop, and now needs to match the digital prop. So it's like this crazy continuum of just fluidity between what is a virtual prop and what is a physical prop just because they can so quickly be one or the other based on the needs of filmmaking so you know just just getting your head around that that asset creation and, and yeah. capture and, and that there's you know things can go back and forth to me is kind of fascinating so i mean that's and that's new obviously
3: continuity I think the script supervisor is going to have a new level of continuity to look out for now and not only are they looking out for things that are moving around when you're doing like a reverse but also you know when you reverse that background as well you know is it going to make sense um and yeah we had a similar thing when we shot when we did Percival the thing last year um for us it, we didn't go to the extreme of scanning the props um but the thing is for us like we 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 built the forest digitally and then the art department went and found some like you know trees and rented some tree trunks because you can rent these things and it just wouldn't match perfectly and obviously i'm like well is anyone going to notice it you I know mean, we're going to out focus it but the digital artists are so cool they just went onto the marketplace found a similar looking tree adjusted it and this was on the set by the way this wasn't like in a studio this is on the set and boom we had it matched and i think there's a lot of backwards and forwards and again that's a collaboration between art department and uh, and the unreal engine artists and usually unreal engine artists v- very rarely get to talk to anyone on the set you know traditionally it's the vfx supervisors right or, or your leads but now all of a sudden like the, t- the unreal engine team are talking to the prop designers and they're like backwards and forwards then the-, the gaffers talking to the lighting artists and the cinematographers talking to the virtual production supervisor and there's this this like big like mold of conversation going on and i and i'm just looking i go wow yeah. there's like the ego thing kind of goes out the window all of a sudden because everyone's like they're all in the same roof they've got the same mission which is how do we make that final frame look good and right and i think that's beautiful i think it's great
4: so i have a question that i've been wondering about with all the specifically led walls but also on situations where led volumes maybe not done like some of the stuff that has you're doing um how much of what is on that wall or taking place at filming is final pixels versus being touched up later or because i've heard that on the mandalorian a lot of their stuff that they filmed they actually ended up rotoing out and then re-rendering something else You know, sense of how often that is, or is that normal, or what?
3: I think, like for a big show like Mandalorian, because it's Disney, and yeah, I I I shot a show for Disney, so I I can speak freely. Um, But like, they have they have contingencies for that. Mm -hmm. I think you know, for for like, like like medium or two independent filmmakers, you gotta get your final pixels final pixels now, but on our case, we still had a visual effects supervisor on set. Yeah, you know, when we did the thing at Rebellion, Yeah, you know, I remember like up think the line producer was like, do we need a visual effects supervisor? But the idea is there's no post. I'm like, don't ever say there's no post. There's always going to be a level of post, okay? You know, right down to color grading, sound mix, that's all mm-hmm. post. But we still had a VFX supervisor and I'm so glad we did because the VFX supervisor still did the measurements, you know, took the lens distortion charts and all of that stuff because later on we have these elements where we have fireflies in the forest in the back. And obviously you're looking at the screen, you're like I'm pretty sure you kind of need one or two fireflies in front as well. Just even out of focus, just to help feel like it's immersed. And we had the tracking and we had moving cameras. So luckily we had tracking data. So you will always have an element of post to be done. And I always advise all producers, even if, you, if you're being told so many times that the post is going to be minimal, still budget, for some time and money for posts. Because you just don't know what can happen on a day. You may run out of time. I mean, this happens even without LED walls. Like, you know, whether you're shooting exterior, interior, things happen on a day. Dude, that's what a that contingency is for. So yeah, you're always gonna end up touching stuff up um, in post. I think you'll always, especially the power composite in a way. Agreed.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, but but one interesting thing I've heard, um, you know, again going back to LED walls, is that is that what ends up being done in post on these big shows is, is less complicated stuff like if you if you start with a green screen shot, then you need to get somebody who's really amazing in post-production that can just you know do incredible three d animation, do incredible tracking. Whereas if you get kind of a botched but mostly like ninety percent of the way they're shot on an LED wall, that could be a that could be a much less expensive person that's just coming in and doing some simple two d fixes. They might even be able to pull it off like in something like Resolve where they're just you know doing you know some color grading to address something or you know a blur to kind of fix something that just didn't quite look right. So, you know, it, it, knowing that you got it a lot closer to begin with does potentially make the post side less expensive and, and less complicated. So, you know, it, it has yeah. it has its pluses for sure.
1: Yeah, a lot of the challenges, a lot of the hard, the harder stuff that you might find yourself with VFX doing is trying to resolve two different worlds, right? And say, sort of saying, okay, we need to take this world, fit it into this world and then have it look like a good comp or, you know, like something naturalistic. But you might have two different elements from here and here that were shot at different times that just don't marry very well. And that's really where the, that's, that's where it gets real tough and it's elbow grease. It's lots of versions. It's just subjective eyes. It's relighting. It's doing all these really, to, to Noah's point, very complex things. Whereas if everything's all in the same world, but you're just sort of tweaking some stuff in the background, a lot of that heavy lifting is, um, is certainly taken care of because of the methodology you followed to get there.
4: Yeah i would imagine that if if they did need to redo something in the background as long as you had a fairly close something that you filmed on the led wall when you come back to try to do that um rotoing out everything would be much easier to if it's already the right colors back there instead of like right. trying to get that fade and all yeah. that i don't never done rotoing in them not that I want to. I try. did so
3: much. I did so much yeah. rotoing dude. Like that is why. Like when I became a director, there's if I hear anyone say, "Oh, you know, don't worry about moving that that rig. We'll roto it." I'm like, no, <laughs> because I'm that guy in the basement at NPC back in 2008 rotoing fitting grass. Okay, so but no, I mean, look, and also you got to think about it. Like if you're rotoing something on an LED wall, um, you got light bleed that's going to come through. Right on the edges mm. and stuff. I mean, it's hard enough getting a good key, but you know, to get all the light bleed. So, if you're going to replace the background completely because somehow creatively in the editorial decided to change the background, it's going to be a lot of work. But if you're augmenting stuff, like, you know, maybe like, you know, painting out a sign or, or, or you've, or something you're doing just augmentation, then that's okay. You know, mm. your roto is just there to help, you know, mask, you know, to help the masking process, mm. but you're not gonna need to get like 100% articulation, I think. Has
1: did you uh, did you have to do like 3D tracking of that scene? Because I, I was wondering about that. I haven't had to track something like 3D track something in from a volume. Because I could imagine that that would be a little difficult to actually get like a real it would. 3D it, it world would. track on. Yeah, we on we end up was through on like I could imagine that yeah. being challenging to comp no, something f- into your volume, like into the depth of your
3: volume. No, that that was that's extremely tricky. You know, we used PF track yeah. to try and get a solve. Uh, yeah. we also obviously we had you know we had um the BFX Supervisors take 3D data, which helped. Um and there's also a level of metadata you can get as well that kind of yeah. helps with you know lens and stuff. But you know at the end of the day, we just went into Resolve and did a 2D track. It was yeah. as simple as that. And yeah. the thing about Resolve, it's extremely powerful. You know, you could, you know, back in the day to do skin, you know, to, to change the skin tone and stuff, you had to get it, you had to do a key and that kind of thing. And now they've got like facial analysis, the way it just maps, you know, it picks out the skin, even if you're wearing glasses and stuff. It's mind-boggling. So, like, you know, before I always say before you go and try and do an expensive 3D solve. Just look at what (laughs) the editorial can do, specifically things that resolve the grade, because there's a lot you can do in there.
2: Yeah, you know, again, talking about technological leaps over time, I'm so relieved that 3D didn't really take off as much as it could to the point where it was ubiquitous because this stuff would be like trying to do what like the LED wall simply wouldn't work in 3D because oh, it's nice. it really is a 2D magical trick in front of the camera that yeah. if you could see the depth you'd instantly realize oh that 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 backdrop doesn't go off to infinity it's actually only ten feet away from the subject that looks super weird mm-hmm. so um you know what but just 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 has this point that when you're getting into a 2d fixed world, you kind of get away with murder on a lot of this stuff because it just, it just, it's like, if you can get it so that it kind of looks right in 2d, then the, eye will just do the rest and just like, Oh yeah, that looks correct. And take it from there. So, um, Yeah, and I and I I personally feel like this this wave of LED wall stuff will not go the way of 3D just because it's a lot simpler to work with, and it kind of has so much more application. You know, like 3D movies. I think there were. I really think Avatar was really the only 3D movie that we ever needed, and everything else that came after was just kind of like "Mm, it's 3D because why not? But you know, that 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 just seemed like a dead end, and, and and this feels like something that has a lot more upside for sure.
4: Yeah. So Unreal is the kind of the program that gets most of the accolades, the attention for all this virtual production stuff. Are there other um solutions out there? Are there add-ons that people are using? Like what's the What's the field looking like for solutions? You have,
3: you have Unity, you know. Like people mm-hmm. forget, like you know, there's Unity, and you know, like amazing filmmakers like Neil Blomkamp's Oat studios did some like amazing work before the whole Unreal Engine revolution like went full blown. Um, you know, it's like of everything, it's the right tool for every for, for whatever task you're using, right? You know, and I'm sure there's going to be other little tool sets or add-ons that you know that will you know that will plug into either Unity or Unreal. But I, you know, I think. The reason why Unreal is so popular is because you know you, it's there's so much there's so much content in terms of educational content that you can get. There's so much asset you can get from the marketplace. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think the the big thing is you know which um which Epic would probably figure out is, you know, when you make a game in Unreal Engine, you obviously you pay royalties if you made like a million dollars or something, right? Um, and and this a minute if you made a million dollars in a game, you're in a good place to pay royalties. <laughs> um, but I think but there isn't anything like that yet for like um like for movies that are being made. And no doubt they're thinking about that. But um, a lot of the reason why people pick tools sometimes is like, you know, how does it fit within their production? You know, we're going into subscription model now. Most tools are available subscription. No one buys an Adobe license or or an Autodesk Maya license. You buy a subscription. Um, and I think a lot of the decisions you you make on your tools is, is really dependent on your, on your key talent. You know, like when I was in visual effects, uh, I would only hire nuke compositors because the studio that I was supervising at only had nuke seats. Although I had an amazing fusion compa who was so good, but I couldn't hire that person. Mm-hmm. So a lot of that is down to like popularity and, and mm-hmm. it seems that like Unreal seems to be winning that because there's just so much, you know, there's things like the Epic Mega Grant which encourages people to like make the transition and so on.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just just to piggyback on what it has says about that, you know, um Unreal itself and and Unity to to an extent as well. They're they're kind of unique as a visual effects tool in that they don't have to pay for themselves with visual effects. They have this little thing called Fortnite, which mm-hmm. brings them in bazillions and bazillions and bazillions of dollars that allows them to then essentially offer it for free to filmmakers. Which is very cool because just about any other visual effects tool like your Nuke, your Maya, etc., they, they need to make a living as just visual effects tools. So they need to charge you for a subscription. They need to like, and it needs to be an expensive subscription that makes it harder to get into if, if you're not already working. So having, knowing that there's that massive resource of development that fuels that tool that has absolutely nothing to do with filmmaking to me, is kind of intriguing and refreshing because it just, you know, we're, we're kind of, you know, filmmakers are so used to basically having to push the envelope themselves and in this one case we're kind of just being dragged along for this ride because the tool happens to work so well but we you know we don't have to be the ones driving so it's it's kind of nice
4: mm. uh, unreal such a customizable tool i mean you can download the entire source code and do whatever you want game developers do that all the time uh, so i would imagine that there'll be some very deep you know customized unreal engines at some point um, so question I asked the group yesterday, the motion capture group, um, you can answer within any NDAs that you may or may not have, um, what are some things coming in the future that you're really looking forward to? Um,
3: okay, I'll go first cause I'm on a roll here. Um, probably, um, AI based machine code, uh, machine, machine learning tools, like for example, like motion capture. Yeah, and there's quite a few of this already now where, you know, you put a bunch of GoPros, you know, six or cameras and something, and it'll film the footage and then it would use machine-based learning to analyze each frame and create a skeleton. Now, you know, it's still a little bit early. It's not 100% perfect, but I think, you know, this is gonna open so many doors because it just like LED walls did, where you know, actors don't have to leave their ha- their town to, to shoot mm-hmm. something, you know, or you don't or you run you can't shoot a specific location, you know, the same thing's gonna be with motion capture. You know, you we're already in a stage now with inertia suits where you don't need to go into a, a Vicon motion capture stage. You know, now obviously there, there's debate about you know how much quality the fidelity of the motion capture is, but the point is you can just get an X Sense inertia suit or Rococo and just do it. Right, and I think the next thing in the future is like you basically shoot your actor wherever they are, treat it like live action, except feed that through the machine-based um, learning algorithm, and it will generate the skeleton. Yeah, you know, there's a version of that already, right? Brand for rotoscope, and right, they do some machine learning for rotos. So, yeah.
4: Yeah.
3: Yeah, it's uh, you know, like I'm excited for the a-
1: for AI tools as well. Uh, you know, for for workflows that are just super labor intensive, right? And so, yeah. something that you really wish a human didn't have to do. Um, you know what I mean? Uh, mm-hmm. but they're they're super finicky. You know, the like the models uh they they take a totally different approach to get there and uh what we found is the challenge is taking some AI tool sets, but also wanting to be able to get human intervention at, at the end product before it's baked. Cause a lot of that AI is just, it's baked, it's done. It's the way it is. And if you don't like mm-hmm. it, like, like re you know uh, you've got to retrain it. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, and that's, that's an un, unpredictable output at times that training is like, okay, let's train it and see what happens and then keep updating the training. So trying to find that bridge between the AI and the, and and the normal tool set that we all know like uh because because we do some work with an ai group um, in developing some tool sets and there's this concept of ground truth right and my point is the ground truth is whatever the director approves in di and says it's final right like that at the end of the day so until you get there nothing is nothing is is true ground truth and you need all the flexibility you can get until you get to that point, or else you're going to paint yourself into a corner. So, like, I get so excited when I see all the two minute papers, and it's like, oh my god, all this stuff is so amazing. Mm. Uh, and I do think that it's it's going to get there. Uh, I think that it, it's going. It, I. Don't quite know how it's going to fit into our pipelines. Um, but but it will for sure. And that's gonna be very exciting to see that it's gonna, it's never gonna just be all of a sudden, you know, like yeah. we have no work to do. Uh it's gonna be this, it's gonna be a gradual sort of progression. I think you'll see tool sets, you know, coming into Nuke and other kind of applications like that that really leverage certain key things that you're like, okay, if you can get us 90% of the way and then give us the the like let a human take it the last 10% that is what humans are really good at, right. Is dialing stuff in and then being able to iterate it going forward to get it final. Um, So that I'm really excited for that. We're also excited for volumetric Uh, Mm -hmm. we've been doing some volumetric crowds. And that's, that's pretty cool too, because you start with the real, you start with someone's real cloth, their real hair, their real action, you know, they're acting. And if you can get that into a world and relight it, you know however you'd like and be able to place them wherever you want and really not have to worry too much about it, it you know you can get some really high quality uh photo real people without having to go to like an articulate cg humanoid uh so that's that i think is that's that's i think going to be the next sort of tool set that that's coming to to bear as well so i'm, I'm excited to see that flesh out a little bit more
2: yeah, I mean both those both those uh, areas are are super uh, intriguing to me as well and I and I feel like if there's one thing that I'm interested in on top of all that is the idea of kind of what we call computational cinematography. Where, you know, this you can see this in the in the most recent iPhone where they're able to take essentially a LIDAR scan and combine it with the kind of optical capture of the camera to be able to develop a real-time depth map, which is cool because then what they can do is they can literally in post-production decide where the focus is going to be. Whereas like any conventional camera, it's the focus is set at the time you shoot. And once you know the depth in addition to the to the to the cinematography itself, then Composites become far easier because yeah. you can just set exactly you know where in depth in the shot you want to you want to do your shot. I mean, essentially, green screens could go away entirely, and any shot could be a comp because if you're if you're always shooting depth uh, information, and anytime you want, you can just set a comp. So I, I think that those kinds of AI kind of computational you know machine learning tools, the more they get into you know higher end cinema cameras, I, it, the the possibilities are going to be really endless with what you can do. Now, I, there's no reason why you couldn't literally do away with an LED wall and have the compositing engine itself live in the camera and you just mm-hmm. load up it into your camera and wherever you point the camera, you're shooting whatever scene you want. I mean, that, that is absolutely a possib- possibility. So just yeah. seeing where these things go when, when the, you know, kind of the Aries, the Reds, the, you know, the, the, the uh, major camera manufacturers get a ha- get their heads around what they can do you know the possibilities are really endless so that's
3: cool. it's kind of like live comp i remember like you know like 10 years ago being on the set and we had a—I um, forgot what the system was called but like it was hooked up to to a pc and i remember seeing a live action green screen and then like the the person switched it to the cg background and i'm like oh my god and you know obviously it's like this but you know what you're talking about is full 3d spatial you know um depth but you know it's gradual, you know, mm-hmm. filmmakers want more and more, you know, ambitions are getting bigger and bigger Ends growing with the tech and the tech is now having to like catch up. But um, yeah, I think uh, there's just so much stuff to look forward to, but at the end of the day, we still have to remember the grassroots of, filmmaking and storytelling you know it is down to a good friggin script right no matter tech it's gonna fit a bad script and sometimes you know even i get overwhelmed by tech and oh my god we can do this on led walls we can do volume captures do all that and then you have to think back like what is the heart of what we're doing as a filmmaker we're telling a good story and you know and all this other stuff is to help support tell that story i think we got to keep reminding ourselves that we get so overwhelmed with the awesome tech out there
4: All right, we are at our hour. So, Houston, if you want to jump back in here, we could probably keep going for a couple more hours. (laughs) Uh,
0: Thank you, guys. Yeah, so we will have to do another one of these. I think with a little bit more time. I think this this topic in particular, the cross with this new tech, virtual production in, and I think eventually, like early on at the very beginning, it will just become part of the regular production i don't think it will be such a separate thing anymore it'll just be like how they use green screens and things and or blue even in the back it'll just be another tool in the whole filmmaking process uh, but man yeah we could go on and on and, and i appreciate you guys taking the time already out of the day to to be here for us and um thank you so much uh, but we are going to wrap it up we're going to say goodbye um is there anything else you guys would like to shout out or see make sure people know about or check before we go okay. Good. All right. Cool. Well then um, I'll say thank you to the audience as well for joining us. It was it's been a fantastic ride all through this whole week and um, I think we'll do something like this again in the future. Uh, we have one more show later this afternoon, 1 p.m. Pacific, where I'm going, I, it'll just be me and our president, John Bach, talking about the state of the computer hardware industry as a whole. And uh, so stay tuned for that. And, and just one last time, thank you, Brian, Noah, Haz, Kelly. Thank you guys so much for being here. today. Pleasure. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah Thank you so much. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. 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 Bye.